What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to yet another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole and I actually have the uh, luxury of, of a producer day. My, yes. my little brother, Bobby, is uh, in the, the studio with us, so he's helping us with the, on, the recording and uh, camera switching, so I can actually somewhat pay attention to what I'm actually supposed to be talking about. We were talking last episode how it felt kind of lonely in here with mm-hmm. just two of us, even though we did it just us for years with uh, getting so used to AJ. Yeah. You know, Fine. Felt, we, felt we felt like we, we had made it, and then it was snatched from us. I know. <laughs> But now Bob's here, so it's all good. Yes. Who needs AJ now? Yeah. What's he doing? Rotations, I, I think. Yeah. He might even be out of the country. He had one of his rotations overseas, I think. Oh, like, yeah? Real early on, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're doing an episode that's our topic that's kind of a tag-along to last time. A little bit. Kind of, yeah. A little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know? yeah. I didn't even think about that. That's good. Good. good call. Dawned on me as I was prepping. There you go. Yeah. So we are uh, coming at you tonight with another accredited episode, and so we're going to be talking about substance use disorder. Now, we've covered opioid uh, use disorder specifically in the past, so we'll kind of touch on that one briefly, but we'll spend the majority of the time talking about um, different stimulants and um, even cannabis and benzos, things like that. And uh, so we're going to kind of touch on a more broad range of different substances instead of just opioids this time. But uh, and obviously we won't go over nicotine uh, replacement because that's that what we did that the last time, last accredited episode. So um, we're going to be discussing this today uh, and uh, kind of giving our one of our blanket overviews. But uh, this is an accredited episode. So for those of you who are free CE members um, and you have the unlimited membership or the uh, the gold or platinum membership, then you already have access to all of our accredited episodes. Uh, when you listen to the uh, you listen to this episode, at some point we will give you a password that you can use to access the post activity test, and from there you'll have to answer ten multiple choice questions. Get them, you know, you get I think it's seventy to pass. You guys can handle that, and you'll get your one hour of continuing education credit for pharmacists and nurses. And uh, yeah, if you're not a free CE member, what are you doing? Got to join. Check out the website. They got all kinds of good stuff: monographs, live events podcast episodes they got a lot of uh, good learning opportunities so make sure you check them out and um, we'll reveal the password in due time it's a 70 on the quiz to pass i think so that's not too bad it's not no i think it's pretty forgiving c's get degrees <laughs> yep. even apparently in the continuing education c's get c's yeah they do c's get c's you might say Mm-hmm. okay yeah something like that so what, we're talking about substance use disorder? I think so. Yeah, so to cl- like Mike said, this is going to be um, an umbrella for really any substance, which doesn't just include illicit substances, right? Legal substances, prescription medications. Uh, so we'll talk about multiple different things. Um, kind of broadly, there is uh, some approaches that you take to them as a whole. And when assessing someone for substance use disorder, you're going to consider a number of things. Um, the type of substance, the frequency, how often they're using it, the amount of the particular substance, which can be difficult to determine sometimes, um, especially from patient reports. Sometimes they might um, talk about how much for like illicit substances, how much they're they're um, spending, you know, per month on the substance. That might give you an idea of how much they're using. But um, caffeine is included, tobacco, nicotine, like we talked about before. Um, alcohol, we'll talk a lot about that um, initially. Prescription medications like opioids, but then benzos and stimulants. We'll talk about marijuana and how that can be um, misused as well. 
Um, and then illicit drugs like cocaine um, is what we're going to focus on, and also methamphetamine with the stimulants. Um, you can ask a few questions if you're just in a primary care office talking to a patient to assess this just to see if they're using um, uh, the substance every day, twice a week, whatever it is, to get some indication of quantity um, to, to kind of give you enough information as to whether you should assess further for a substance use disorder. Yeah. I think that's one thing that a lot of these different guidelines and whatnot do kind of focus on is just is separating the difference between somebody using a substance you know, recreationally, like once or twice, or, you know, socially, you know, at random points, and then having, you know, to be actually evaluated for substance abuse disorder. Um, so we'll talk more about that as we go. But um, I like when you were talking about the different um, substances, you know, starting off with kind of like the caffeine, tobacco, alcohol, the more like socially acceptable, you know, drugs, if you will, that, uh, you know, that kind of icebreakers when you're having yeah. that conversation, don't just jump into um So, What's your thoughts on crack? Right. So you shoot up meth? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but if you go through a checklist, or I even saw a um, a little questionnaire that they could answer a little more privately when they're filling out some intake paperwork, they they might feel more comfortable checking a box there than you know feeling like they're getting um, not that they would be getting ambushed, but you know no. sometimes it, if it, for people who might be using, I imagine they're a little sensitive to questions. For sure, and I think it's it's all in how you. Approach. If you come at it from an accusatory standpoint or a judgmental standpoint, then you're going to probably met, be met with some resistance. If you come at it from a place of I'm trying to protect you from, you know, the, worsening your comorbidities and, right. and keeping you safe, not so much that I'm, you know, I, you know, I want to help your, your mental health as well, but not coming right. out as a You're trying judgmental. to protect them from harm, not call yeah. the cops. Right, exactly, exactly. There's no way I could pass that. That uh, the academy at this point, two out of shape. <laughs> the the <laughs> police just, academy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to keep being a pharmacist. <laughs> so um, the other thing to assess is the route of administration as well. You know whether or not they're you know taking the the medication orally. Are they smoking it? Are they using you know an intranasal form? You know if something like heroin, for example, that can be you know snorted and taken intranasally, or can be given IV. Depending on you know that scenario, if they get IV, you know could have more of a chance of, of contracting bloodborne pathogens, things like that. Um, the just the route of administration is not going to obviously tell you you know necessarily how you know relying on the substance they are, but it can give you some more insight. Don't it. you love how whenever you're um, kind of reading up on. Uh, medical literature, especially when it comes to illicit substances, they always feel the need to put the street terms for everything and <laughs> just crack you it, up. It's probably the dorkiest thing <laughs> that you could, because it's always like the terms that are like <clears throat> ten or fifteen years outdated. I know, they're they're they not current, like not at all. Like so, like beside uh, intranasal, they have snorting or sniffing. Beside the but, subcutaneous injection, they have skin popping in quotes, shooting uh, up. They have shooting up beside the IV. That <laughs> and, hasn't been used since like eighty-five. And beside the I am injection. They have muscling. So muscling. They have, they have all the the, the yeah. current lingo. Yeah, the current lingo. No, no cap. Cracks me up every time. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Um, so. <laughs> so yeah, they they actually interestingly have some uh, thresholds that are defined by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Um, really, just to give you an idea of patients who might be at increased risk for um, specifically, this is. Um, uh, with alcohol, um, and we'll talk more about alcohol as far as how they stratify the severity of um, kind of 
being the dependency to the dependency and kind of drinking in an unsafe manner versus actually having like a true substance use disorder. Um, but so they have kind of a threshold to where maybe you'll just kind of ping in your mind that you might need to look into this a little further or maybe ask a couple more questions. Um, but it's about how much someone drinks. So a male under 65, um, they say this threshold might be five or more standard drinks. Um, and we've talked about what a standard drink is before, but 12 grams of eth- ethanol, um, which could be in um, one and a half ounces of 80 proof liquor, five ounces of wine, a 12 ounce beer. Um, so five or more of those in a day or 14 drinks per week on average. Um, and then for females and males, so all females and then males over 65, four or more of those drinks in a day or seven drinks in a week on average. They're really skimping the females on the <laughs> drinks here. That's one a day. <laughs> Wait, if, um, no, it's just four or more in a, in a, day, in a day, or day or seven drinks in a week on average. Oh, or seven. So yeah, like yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. A consistent yeah. one per day for a female. It's like, oh, we might need to evaluate for a, uh, a drinking problem. <laughs> yeah, males are like, you had a rough, you had have, a tough time, right? Yeah, we can have well, literally twice as It was much. nothing but a group of over, <laughs> under 65-year-old males that wrote this guideline. <laughs> no, we're actually, we can tolerate way Way more. more. We can hold our liquor so much better than those ladies. Oh, man. Uh, Anyways, that's not saying we'll go through kind of some diagnostic criteria for a substance use disorder. That's just a threshold for. um, Yeah, while you're working them up for or screening for substance abuse in general. Yes. And, uh, you know, looking for comorbidities as well. It's not just, you know, it's one thing to, to help them kind of work through an addiction, especially if it's affecting their life, you know, from a negative standpoint or, you know, socially, you know, from a work standpoint, whatever it may be. But they, a lot of times patients with substance abuse disorder do have um, comorbidities as well. So their patients with substance, substance use disorder are going to be have are a higher likelihood of also having comorbid depression disorders, bipolar disorders, um, anxiety disorders, dealing with PTSD, um, eating disorders, ADHD, and even schizophrenia. And so, um, you know, the, the, those are higher risk. And then patients um, have a really high risk of personality disorders, especially borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, um, are highly associated with substance abuse. Yeah. And we've talked about this on other um, episodes we've done on psych illnesses, but it's definitely a chicken or egg thing. And more likely it's that patients are trying to self-medicate who mm-hmm. have an underlying, you know, psych disorder. Um you should do a mental status examination um, if you're concerned for this, um, and you might um, evaluate their general appearance, behavior, and interactions, motor activity, perceptions, and thought process processes, their cognitive functioning, um, uh, which I guess to evaluate if they're um, currently under the influence. Yeah. But um, of course, if it's um, a severe dependence, they could have long-term changes in those things. It's also important to keep in mind, too, you know, uh, patient's family history because there is a strong genetic link to substance abuse disorder. So family history of substance abuse um, has been shown as a risk factor for the development of, you know, the other members of the family developing it later on. Um, So they say with uh, the heritability of um, estimate, estimated ranges are 50 to 70 percent for alcohol use disorder, 34 to 78 percent for cannabis use disorder. 42 to 79 for cocaine use, 23 to 54% with opioid. So, so some broad ranges, but the, you know, the definitely more of a percentage than. It's pretty significant. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, I'd imagine. It'd be hard to, hard to argue against that correlation. I feel like it's a little different than like inheriting, uh, you know, migraines. I imagine there's a lot of environmental factors mm-hmm. to play in more so than 
or even as much as genetic component. Yeah, but I, well, I think that it's probably the mix of the genetic component plus the environmental factors, and yeah. you know that all that putting that patient more predisposed or they're more predisposed to going that route. Yep. All right, let's talk through the actual diagnostic criteria. And this you'll kind of see that this the other like individual substances that we'll talk about kind of follow this exact path as far as the diagnostic criteria. So they say um, that in order to be labeled as, as substance use disorder, um, the patient has to, it has to be a problematic pattern of use leading to clinically significant impairment or distress is manifested by two or more of the following with, within a 12-month period. So um, patients often ta- um, taken in the larger amounts or over longer periods than it was intended, talking about the substance, a persistent desire, unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control use, a great deal of time spent in activities necessary to obtain, use, or recover from substance effects, craving, um, you know, or strong desire, recurrent use resulting in failure to fulfill major rural obligations at work or school, um, and uh, important social, occupational, recreational activities are given up because you know, uh, um, or at least reduced because of use, um, tolerance, withdrawal, physical um, harm, uh, recurrent use, even in situations that can cause physical harm. Um, it, it, you can kind of see that it's basically somebody choosing the substance over, not just because they want to use it because it makes them feel better, but also they're putting them, themselves in harm's way to get access to it or to continue to use it or letting their life deteriorate. That's what kind of moves it over from the use to like the actual disorder. If you apply this to caffeine, which it sounds like they would, um, I have a lot of family members who need some intervention mm-hmm. for substance use disorders because uh, taking I'm larger angry. amounts or over a longer period of time than it was intended, a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control use. Yeah. Well, that's the good thing about caffeine, though, is there's really not too much you can take. Um, I mean, I, I mean, there has to be a, too much, but yes. No. It's, it's Tolerance, withdrawal. I mean, it's got all... It's, it, there, you, you would probably... You would probably meet, I'll go over the severity, but you'd probably, this would, my sister would have a moderate substance use disorder for caffeine. Oh, for sure. I think we all would. Well. We all have to go to rehab. Yeah, I don't really drink coffee. Really? No caffeine at all? I don't really like coffee. Hmm. I don't care for it. Oh, no, I do, I do drink caffeine. Okay. Well, we're the talking little, about. The um, little, well, we are talking about caffeine. Yeah. But it's trying, a, you're trying to get out of it. It's you're, very you're going con- to rehab. It's with very us. controlled. It's it's like the um, little squirt stuff that you uh-huh. squirt in water that has caffeine yeah. in it. So I get about seventy to ninety milligrams a day. Yeah, you know who would uh, who would who would give that kind of a defensive argument of that is an addict. <laughs> so somebody, yeah. somebody who's going to rehab <laughs> yeah. with us. Okay, well, that's settled. Touche, touche. Um, so within that, so that there's there's some criteria to put a DSM five diagnosis. Um, um, into somebody's chart, but you can also stratify it based on the severity. Um, uh, so they could be mild, moderate, or severe, and it's related to how many of those criteria they meet. So mild would be two or three criteria, moderate is four to five criteria, and severe is six or more criteria. And as we go through some of the treatment algorithms and options, uh, pharmacologic versus psychosocial, uh, that stratification can be important to determine what you might want to start with or combination they're in. All right, so I guess we'll start off with uh, unhealthy alcohol use. So um, having some, you know, question like some some sets of questions that we can kind of use to sort of quantify um, the the patient's 
you know, use of alcohol and, and the extent of their use and then kind of see if, if it's to the point where we would consider it an unhealthy amount. Um, so we have, for example, um, like the Audit C. Um, it's a screening test that is comprised of three different items uh, on excess consumption from alcohol use disorders identification test. And so it goes, how it asks how often do you have a drink containing alcohol? How many drinks containing alcohol do you have on a typical day when you are drinking? And how often do you have six or more drinks on one occasion. Um, and then the, the scores are considered positive for unhealthy drinking if the patient has three or more in female patients um, with 73% sensitivity, 91% specificity, four or more in men um, with 86% sensitivity, and 89% specificity. And I'll define some terms with alcohol too. So um, the reason we specify unhealthy alcohol use is because this is a um, distinct designation that encompasses the spectrum of alcohol use that can result in health consequences like risky use, um, and it can result in alcohol use disorder, but isn't it itself. Um, and about 30% of adults, they would say, um, in, the, in the U.S., use alcohol in an unhealthy manner based on their definition. Um, and then risky use refers to the consumption of alcohol that, um, or an amount of alcohol that puts someone at risk for health consequences. Alcohol use disorder is what you would think, the actual disorder characterized by a lot of the substance use criteria we talked about. And then binge drinking. So Mike mentioned uh, a question about drinking a lot when you do drink. Um, and that is, um, they designate that as drinking so much within two hours that your blood alcohol concentration reaches 0.08 grams per deciliter. So basically you reach the legal limit of um, drunkenness within two hours of starting to drink. So if we're assessing somebody for um, alcohol, unhealthy alcohol use, you know, besides all of our questionnaires and, and sort of, you know, health history to, to sort of assess them from a mental health standpoint, um, we also want to assess some of their labs. Obviously, we want to get their um, LFTs. So, um, you know, seeing if there's any um, alcoholic well, induced liver disease, um, you know, checking bilirubin, albumin, um, you know, basically an AST, ALT ratio of two to one is, um, potentially suggestive of an alcohol-induced liver disease. Um, we also want to get a CBC and um, looking, you know, obviously for any types of uh, anemia. Um, we may even want to get a GGT as well. Um, so it's an indicator of excess alcohol use um, when those levels are elevated. And um, so it's 8 to 40 um, is the reference range, I believe, females and 9 to 50 units for males. So if you have a um, if those levels, those GGT, GGT levels are elevated, that's an indicator of that excessive alcohol use. Right. Um, another screening questionnaire uh, that I was familiar with and uh, I've heard of a few times um, to evaluate this is the CAGE alcohol screening questions. Um, it's an acronym standing for cut down, annoyed, guilty, or eye opener. Um, the questions being, have you ever felt you should cut down on drinking? Have people annoyed you by criticizing <laughs> your drinking? Have you ever felt bad or guilty about your drinking? And have you ever taken a drink first thing in the morning, and they call that an eye-opener, <laughs> uh, to steady your nerves or get rid of a hangover? Two affirmative responses are 77% sensitive and 79% uh, specific for an alcohol use disorder, uh, but only 53% and 70% respectively for unhealthy alcohol use. So it's more indicative of actually a little more of a severe um, um, form of alcohol dependence versus just using it unhealthily. Yeah. 
All right, let's jump into some of the meds to maintain or that they can use to help maintain their sobriety and kind of curve the cravings for the alcohol. So first-line agents, um, typically speaking, naltrexone is oftentimes what we try to use first-line um, for alcohol use disorder. Um, there's a few different formulations available. You know, we can use either the uh, IM formulations, the 380 milligrams IM uh, every four weeks, um, in, in that case, you know, we have to worry about the um, injection site reactions and, and potential infection at the injection site. Um, and then the systemic effects like the headache, dizziness, GI effects that can happen, um, you know, increasing your LFTs potentially. And uh, keep in mind, too, if a patient has, you know, extensive liver disease, so, you know, their LFTs are three to five times the upper limit of normal, um, the naltrexone would be contraindicated in those patients with that more advanced liver disease. So we'd have to use some of our other options at that point. Um, But monitoring the the LFTs and and making sure that that the patient's liver is not deteriorating. But... um, the oral tablets are also available, um, typically 50 milligrams uh, once daily. Um, some individuals um, will be able to titrate up to 100 milligrams once daily after at least a week of being on the 50. But um, the GI effects are oftentimes prohibitive of going up in those, those doses. And you still got to monitor the LFTs and all that good stuff. Right. Uh, there's another reasonable option called a Campersate, which is 666 milligrams three times a day. Don't ask me who decided on that dose. Um, but uh, it can also cause GI effects like diarrhea. It can also have some, have some neurologic adverse effects associated, um, anxiety, insomnia, depression. Um, and uh, you, it is impaired or is contraindicated in impaired renal uh, function, significantly impaired, less than 30 milliliters per minute. Um, if their renal function is 30 to 50, you can initiate it, but you would do it at half the dose. Um and uh, for uh, patients who weigh less than 60 kilograms, about 130 pounds, um, you would want to start at half the dose as well. So those would be our first, uh, our first line agents. So either those, um, our second line agents are going to start off with one that I'm sure you've heard about at some point, but disulfiram. So this is one that uh, basically, if you were to drink while taking this, then you're probably going to have some some vomiting to deal with. Um, so that disulfiram reaction is not uh, enjoyable from, from what I hear. Antabuse is the brand. Yes. Right. Um, did I tell you about that uh, patient I had in clinic one time? I was with his wife, and he was, we were talking about cutting down on drinking and stuff, and he, when he left to go to the bathroom, and his wife like, was trying to get me to get him antabuse oh, really? and not tell him what it was <laughs> so that oh, he would – so that he, I was like, yeah, I'm not – I would go to jail. <laughs> like, and it's like, no, I'm not going to poison your husband. He's like <laughs> – Drunk or hungover, and she's they're trying to get you to give him. Yeah, the she's like, or... just give him that. We don't have to tell him what it is. Like that way, it'll keep him from drinking. I'm like, no, it'll put him in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, it's crazy. So, disulfiram is definitely uh, more of a second line option. Um, this is probably a better option for someone who is like very motivated to to quit, and you know, is going. Because you can't to, drink while you're on yeah, it. Versus the others, you could. Yeah. So you have to you have to be you know very specific about the patients that you used you know this with, but um, still monitoring LFTs. Um, some side effects to watch for: uh, fatigue, headache. Um, it can affect the taste as well. So patients will oftentimes report like a 
like a garlic taste. Sometimes just an overall bitter taste, but garlic it's been referred to sometimes, or described as I should say. Um, neuropathy can also happen. And um, some, you know, contraindications, um, if the patient's had um, severe myocardial disease, uh, if they've had any straight psychosis, um, and then like Cole said, ongoing alcohol use would be a contraindication as well. Uh, then there's a couple others that are used for many other things, but um, have, we're going to see them a few times tonight. Yeah, we're going to see them tonight, and of course they're used for their standard indications as well. But uh, tapiramate and gabapentin, um, and um, so they have a little bit of data in um, alcohol misuse. But uh, with tapiramate, it's it's really close to doses you would see elsewhere at 25 milligrams once a day, and you can titrate it up up to 300 milligrams. Um, and it has the side effects and concerns that we would generally be familiar with with it. Um, and then gabapentin, 300 milligrams once a day is recommended in this case. Uh, and you can increase it up to 600 milligrams three times a day. Um, and it has the, the general things we'd be concerned about. But, yeah, interesting options. I was familiar with gabapentin. I don't know that I always would think of Topamax uh, being there, but it is. Yeah, apparently Topamax is very helpful with yeah. various types of substance abuse. It's good. I'm going to move on to cocaine. Yeah, so that's that's as far as we'll get into alcohol. Um, we, we won't talk too much about withdrawal with any of these. There is, you know, a whole slew of um, Protocol. uh, protocols for um, dealing with withdrawals and things. That, that's a little outside the scope of today, but we'll come back and do another episode on it. So as far as cocaine use disorder, um, we won't go through all of the different diagnostic, just, cause, just for time's sake, but um, I do I want think to- the general... DSM-5 for substance use, it generally applies to to really all of these in in a broad way. Yeah, absolutely. And and so to touch on some of the the treatment options for cocaine use disorder specifically, um, topiramate is actually one of the first-line options um, for that as well. And so um, it's been been shown to be effective, um, especially as an augments to, you know, standard psychosocial treatment um, and, and or in patients with psychosocial treatments have, have failed um, to appear made has showed efficacy. So it's it's definitely a uh, an option. Like Cole said, the side effects can be prohibitive sometimes, especially the cognitive impairment and some of those types of things. Um, but it does does have good data. There's several trials of um, UpToDate has a really good uh, summary of the trials on there. There's a 13-week trial that included 40 patients and a 12-week trial that included 142 patients. Um, and so that, that, it kind of gives some summaries and some good stuff if you want more information on that. Yeah, that 13-week trial, um, the patients in the Tapirmate group were more likely to achieve at least three weeks of continuous abstinence um, compared to the placebo group, 59 to 26%. Mm-hmm. Not a small study, but not too bad. Yeah. Um, then there's long-acting amphetamines as well. So you can use long-acting amphetamines as an augmenting agent um, for those who don't respond to, to pyramate, and they're going to block the same monoamine transporters as cocaine. Uh, but then they're, of course, relatively um, a slower uptake and a longer duration, so they're, um, though they can be misused, they're less likely to be misused in the same way as cocaine, cocaine would. Um, it's kind of, it's similar to the idea, you know, it's, uh, you're getting, the first thought that comes to your mind is why replace, you know, something with the, what they're abusing. It's, it's similar to methadone with opioid use disorder. They're not going to get the same response from it. And so the idea is it's not meeting that need, but it, um, prevents them from abusing cocaine or at least, uh, prevents them from going into withdrawal so that it can be tapered slowly. And the idea is to, to get them off of it. Um, but it's, 
generally it's used with the same titration rate and dose use uh, for the patients with ADHD and adult patients with ADHD. Um, and you would kind of follow that same direction for this. And I think it's important to, because to, I think one of the hesitations would be, you know, well, if they're going to, you give them, you know, something like Adderall and then they're just going to go do cocaine along with it. And now you have two different stimulants, but you're, or they're going to sell it and yeah. then buy cocaine. So, but in, I mean, obviously there's, there's, it's not like, you know, that those things don't happen. And, but in, in the, in the case of, you know, a patient that's, that's seeking treatment and whatnot, you know, I, I you're going to be doing drug testing to make sure that the drug you're giving them is in their system is when the drug they're not supposed to be on is not in their system. You know, the, hopefully you have them involved with CBT as well. And, you know, the psychosocial uh, part of it to, you know, meet with their therapist and all that. Um, but I, it's also, you know, with all the fentanyl being, you know, or the cocaine that's laced with fentanyl and the overdoses that have happened lately. Still much safer. So much safer to have control of it. They're still coming into the clinic to have their blood pressure monitored and their, you know, their vitals monitored. You can listen to their heart. Exactly. So I just, it's it sounds at first glance, I feel like, like we're just exchanging one for the other, but really from a... Right, personal standpoint and a population health standpoint. Which now I can get it, you know, prescribers who are already there's all the control around the um, controlled substances, and then somebody who's already abusing something is going to be much more likely to abuse your medication too. Sure, um, I would say document it appropriately and know yeah. that you're doing them a benefit if it if it works. And I mean, somebody who's who has chronic cocaine use and is not just using it occasionally recreationally very likely, like we mentioned before, is self-medicating something. It might be an underlying ADHD, and maybe treating that can be helpful to yeah, get them off. You know? For sure. In fact, a lot, I, th- I can't remember the statistic offhand, but I've read something about that where a lot of cocaine users are untreated ADHD. They're self-medicating with coke. Yeah. Um, some other agents that you could consider, uh, basically uh, another type of the stimulants of modafinil. Uh, so it, that's approved for narcolepsy. Uh, it's just another uh, you know stimulant option, but it's not even as you know habit forming. Let's say as uh, as something like the amphetamines. It's it's still a controlled substance, and it still you know can be something that can be abused, but it's definitely less of a less likely to cause the euphoria and some of that even compared to like the Adderalls. So um, that would be another option if you didn't want to go as, as um, potent as something like Adderall, but also disulfiram, it does have um, some some evidence that it can help in cocaine uh, use disorder as well. I guess it's, just, it's basically re, um, decreasing those reinforcing properties um, of cocaine um, and help, you know, Helping to eliminate some of the the reward pathway. It's that garlic taste. Yeah, it it's that garlic taste. You just don't. Want to taste. Do anything. Just don't yeah. Like I you snort know, the cocaine and the, I smell I, garlic. All, all day. I do is feel garlic. Um, antidepressants have been brought up. There's really not much good evidence at all for them. There's some small data with fluoxetine, a single trial with citalopram, uh, but generally, um, uh, you you might not get much benefit from them, and uh, they're not recommended. Yeah. So then we have other stimulants like methamphetamine. So um, we'll talk about methamphetamine. A lot of it's similar um, as far as the ideas go, but um, the drugs are different. So um, as with cocaine use disorder, um, the medication management is used only after psychosocial treatment, which we didn't really talk too much about, um, but is pretty much what you would think, and that is um, CBT and CBI and various things like that. 
with alcohol, we, we didn't mention it much either, but there's something they call brief intervention, which is basically when you do a, the, um, the questionnaire and you might identify an issue, you just very briefly within just in a few minutes intervene and kind of talk to them about it a little bit and offer resources um, if they want them to help them cut back or um, be abstinent from alcohol. Um, and there's actually pretty good data for that brief intervention. Um, so there's various psychosocial treatments uh, that are that can be used, um, and medication management should be reserved for after that or in a combination with those. Um, but with methamphetamine use disorder, there's trials looking at bupropion, mirtazapine, methylphenidate, um, and then a combination of bupropion and naltrexone. Um, conflicting results, there's some benefit, definitely need more trials, but these are kind of the options at this, this point. Um, so... Among those, bupropion and naltrexone seems to be a pretty good option, um, comparatively speaking. Um, and uh, it would be, um, uh, the, the dose would be extended release injectable naltrexone, 300 milligrams, 380 milligrams monthly, and then 450 milligrams uh, daily of bupropion. And there was a trial with uh, a little over 400 patients evaluating this um, over 12 weeks and seemed to show benefit. Yeah. So if the bupropion uh, and naltrexone combo is, is not appropriate for the patient for whatever reason, <clears throat> mirtazapine um, does have some, some data as well. So mirtazapine is monotherapy. There's two studies that have looked at that and a, um, a meta-analysis as well showed that, that it was efficacious <clears throat> in the treatment of amphetamine use disorder, or methamphetamine use disorder. And uh you know the the issues obviously being you know the the side effects can be um, pretty pretty extensive with mirtazapine potentially you know the the big one is the increase in appetite so patients will oftentimes um, report a, an increase in their appetite and I imagine you know the their appetite is already going to be coming back um, pretty significantly with just coming off of methamphetamine to begin with so with inducing mirtazapine the, the there could be a real chance of some weight gain and some of those issues. Um, at the lower doses, mirtazapine does have some high affinity for the uh, uh, for the uh, histamine receptors, so you can have some fatigue. That usually does get improve and become less significant uh, or less bothersome as the dose goes up. But um, you know the the initial issues with mirtazapine side effect wise could could be a little bit prohibitive. Yeah. Uh, there's also methylphenidate, which doesn't have super strong evidence. Kind of the same idea is using long acting. Um, um, amphetamines for cocaine, I suppose. Um, it had there's a, um, a meta-analysis with limited support, looking at five trials that totaled about 650 patients. Um, another meta-analysis um, showing low strength of evidence from two randomized trials. So, um, not all that fantastic, but there is some data out there for its use. Yep. All right. What do you want to go through? Now? You want to do cannabis uses where? Just yeah. touch on it. Do you want to do the um, password before we do that? Yes. Good call. So the today's password is going to be substance. Substance. Fitting enough. Not substance P. Nope. That'd be a totally different episode. That's that's an arthritis episode. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, substance, all capital letters. S-U-B-S-T-A-N-C-E. Yes. Substance. There you go. So there you, and you'll have access, as long as you're a member of FreeCD.com, you'll have access to the 10-question quiz or test or whatever you want to call it. You'll knock that out and get your credit. Yes. Now let's talk about cannabis. Let's talk about cannabis. Um, so 
if you're talking um, cannabis use disorder, so obviously we have um, medical cannabis that's used in many states throughout the country. Mm. Um, there are um, some states who have legalized a small amount recreationally. Only five countries, interestingly. Surprise me. Five um, countries, really? Five countries for non-medical recreational use. Hmm. Yeah, that's what it said, at least. I don't know if it was up to date, but... Uh, well, it was up to date, but I don't know if it was... <laughs> if, it was if it was current. That part was up to date. Um Regardless, so what we're talking about is cannabis use disorder, which is a diagnosable condition in DSM-5. And um, if you're going through the diagnostic criteria, it's virtually the exact same as the substance use disorder criteria. They define a couple of things um, like recurrent cannabis use in situations in which it is physically hazardous. Well, that's pretty similar, but uh, they define tolerance. So tolerance would be a need for markedly increased amounts of cannabis to achieve intoxication or desired effect um, and markedly diminished effect with continued use of the same amount of cannabis. And then withdrawal, which you don't usually think of withdrawal with cannabis, right? But they do define withdrawal here, um, which would be the characteristic withdrawal syndrome for cannabis. And um, cannabis or a closely related substance is taken to relieve or avoid withdrawal symptoms. So... Um, yeah, so very you, similar to the other substances. Yes, very similar to the other ones. I like how it says um, if you're using higher amounts to achieve the desired effect. <laughs> it just sounds like it's vitamins or something. Yeah, and there, and up to date does go through a whole um, slew of um, uh, health concerns with cannabis abuse and um, concerns related to driving and and that sort of thing. Um, so interesting read if you want to read up on it, but. Yeah, um, yeah, that that would be the reason you would want to intervene in these instances. And as far as you know, the severity goes, the the mild, moderate, and severe, uh, based on the how num- the number of criteria the patient you know, meets on that checklist. That, like Cole mentioned earlier, that still applies for this as well. Um, but they also say to specify if the patient is in early remission or in sustained remission. So in early remission, basically being you know, the, after full criteria for cannabis use disorder was previously met, uh, none of the criteria for cannabis use disorder have been met for at least the last three months, but for less than 12 months. Um, so that would be early remission, and then after 12 months would be sustained remission. And then um, also you know, they want you to put it if it's in a, a controlled environment, um, you know, basically uh, specifying if it's patients using it um, where cannabis is restricted or if it's legal, because that can play a role. Yes. They also mentioned to um, kind of delineate it, the cannabis use disorder from other mental disorders that you might be conflating with the cannabis, but could be other things like dysthymia or other mood disorders, panic attacks um, that might resemble some of that those criteria that you might associate with cannabis, but could be something different. So like the others, there are psychosocial interventions that you would want to use first, um, and they recommend that initially. Um, Pretty much in all cases, uh, sometimes that's um, stratified based on the severity, but here they they go ahead and recommend and say do psychosocial treatment first. And a meta-analysis looking at seven trials with 1,700 patients who were seeking treatment, um, the ones who received the psychosocial treatment were twice as likely as those not to be abstinent um, after three to four months. So, can be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's a, a big, you know, the, the treatment, you know, of choice for cannabis use disorder is almost all therapy. Yes. Um, there's very few medications that have been shown to be all that helpful. So, yes. cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational enhancement therapy are the two 
big, you know, first line options or a combination of the two. And um, that, that should be sort of utilized first line or some, you know, at least attempted to before um, looking at the various medications because the data is very weak. It, there is a paucity of data, as they would say. Paucity. Paucity. Um, one, uh, so all of these are going to be limited and probably not recommended um, to use, but one would be N-acetylcysteine, which we um, hear about in, in various random things yeah. in medicine, um, but it's an antioxidant. Um, it's the uh, N-acetyl prodrug of the naturally occurring amino acid cysteine. But there was one trial with 116 patients, um, 15 to 21 years old, just very generalizable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, of 2,400 milligrams of N-acetylcysteine uh, versus placebo for eight weeks, um, and um, a higher proportion of the, uh, and they, I think they were looking at urine specimens, and it was like 41 versus 27 percent had a negative urine specimen at the um, follow-up time point, that sort of thing, but. I don't know, maybe, but uh, and there's a there's strong. a yeah there's a few other studies too that have been you know they're pretty small but uh, you know a couple of them that have looked at it but um, yeah like Cole said the, the data is not not great gabapentin potential option as well um, if there's something that doesn't have a lot of options probably gabapentin is going to be in there what I have learned um, as of today is that gabapentin is in fact a cure all <laughs> for any type of situation you need to get off something else gabapentin's your yeah. guy you broke your toe. Gabapentin. Oh, it's true. Uh, liver transplant? Gabapentin. Gabapentin. Probably. No, seriously. <laughs> they, were, they looked at that. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's a cure-all. I, I, my, Blood me, pressure issues. I should say gabapentin. Kid, I should say kidney transplant, but they did look at gabapentin post-kidney transplant in place of opioids. Did they? I mean, that would make sense. There were some institutions who do that. I think uh, it's big over, like, in Africa and stuff, I think, too. Yeah, I've we heard, talked about that at one yeah. point, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. So gabapentin is an option. Um, there's some very limited studies, but yeah, basically was well tolerated and um, you know moderately effective, I guess. Yeah. But um, there's also a uh, cannabis whole plant extract yes. that, I, I, at least not on the commercial market, is not available in the U.S. It's, it says um, multiple. Uh, it's used for multiple sclerosis and um, some muscle spasticity yeah. associated with that um, in Canada and, and some European countries. And there's some there's some small studies that have looked at this for reducing cannabis use and um, saw some some benefit with that. So I don't know if that would be something that could be compounded or if it's if there's access to it through. You know, I'd actually I'd heard of this one because um, Epidiolex was being looked at, which is used for seizures and Mm -hmm. the drug I worked with. It was being looked at for um, for MS and spasticity and MS and um, uh and so this, when I was doing some research on that, this one popped up, and I, I, I think this one was being looked at in the U.S. to be approved over here, but they did not approve it because of the amount of THC that it had. Um, but uh, yeah, it's interesting that I came across this one before. Otherwise, I definitely would not have heard of it. So it was, it was like too much THC. It was, it was basically so like epidiolex, for instance, mm-hmm. is virtually no THC, no uh, considerable amounts of THC. Gotcha. It's just all um, CBD straight. It's just mm-hmm. pure CBD oil for the most part. And then this is a one-to-one ratio of THC gotcha. to I see what you're saying. CBD. So that was so too much too for much, them. Too much for them. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But oxycodone's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't help the, yeah. the so, multiple sclerosis patients yeah. with spasticity. Yeah, but, but, but oxycodone, yeah. that's it's an interesting, interesting thing. But I'll get off that soapbox. <laughs> um, we also, uh, th- there's some very minor evidence with uh, topiramates and... Um, 
cannabidiol as well. And uh, so, you know, the, again, very limited um, as far as the number of studies with those. But um, the one that actually surprised me, which shouldn't have, uh, was that they've actually looked at uh, varenicline. <laughs> for um, huh. cannabis use disorder, which is like, oh, yeah, duh, I guess yeah. that makes that makes sense. But um, there was the one study that I was looking at that had 72 adults um, involved, and they were um, using cannabis at least three days per week, and they were randomly assigned six weeks of treatment with varenicline versus placebo. And um, all the participants received their uh, three individual sessions of their you know, CBT uh, therapy, and... Um, the I wrote down the results somewhere. It was f- basically forty-two to twenty-seven percent of patients were um, at the end of the study uh, still avoiding cannabis use. So, you know, it's definitely not. It doesn't seem to be cool, as effective by any means as it is for smoking cessation. But hey, I'm wondering. I, I my my guess is probably if you know, it's going to be a combination of some of those things or to treat the underlying anxiety of whatever they're, they're using the cannabis for in the first right, place. Whatever they're self-medicating for. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cannabis. Yeah. There's, they've looked at a bunch of other like SSRIs and stuff like that and haven't really seen too much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Benzos. Let's do benzos. So, um, benzos, you know, the way we talk about benzos, I really would think that it would, that benzo, benzodiazepine use disorder would be more of an issue than it is. Um, the lifetime prevalence of, Benzo use disorder is less than 1%, though um, the disorder is, um, and admissions related to that, um, or rela- admissions related to benzodiazepines being the primary substance used, have consistently risen over the past decade. I would imagine that it's probably because people with benzos might have another, something like opioids or something else that they're using that is, maybe they would identify as the primary concern before the benzos, but... There's also probably a whole bunch of patients who would would be classified as, you know, benzodiazepine substance abuse, but they're just following their prescription. They're just following their prescription, right? The way that it's written, and because I mean, but they if need. You, but if, if that refill's not on time, if that refill's not, on time, I was about to say, they, like, they, I have experienced going to be consequences. I've experienced firsthand a lot of those criteria yeah. related to my normal patients who take benzodiazepines. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, especially if it's not in stock. If Let's we say quick to anger. If, if that doctor didn't sign the prescription on an accident, <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. Yeah, you're um, getting beheaded. So I imagine that it, it, it is an issue, but maybe just because we're able to fill the medications, they're able to take them as prescribed, and you know it doesn't it doesn't turn into something that the clinicians feel they need to evaluate. Yeah. It's, it's okay. But anyways, it can be a problem, of course, and maybe we've experienced patients with that. And patients who have a disorder related to it could present with a range of severity. Mild cases um, may have no signs of, um, of uh, issues, uh, but then, of course, greater severities might present with acute intoxication or benzodiazepine withdrawal. I mean, if you consider that of those criteria, one of them is withdrawal, um, I, so, I mean, how many of the patients who take benzodiazepines, if you stopped it, would they have withdrawal side effects? That's one, yeah. and all you need is one more criteria, and yeah. then you have benzodiazepine use. For sure. Um, yeah, anyways, I'll, I'll get off that. No, no, I mean, it's, it is true, that I think it's just widely underdiagnosed, probably. Yeah, um, which, which if it's not causing I mean, problems, oh, then yeah, that's the, it's fine, it's, it's just... But according to that criteria, though, some of them, the problems maybe aren't as 
detrimental as others, depending on how you look at that sure. <laughs> that list. Sure. I guess that's where you get the severity from. But right, I think my concern is just it it they'll continue on them, and then it's going to end up being mixed with other other yeah. prescription meds that you're prescribing for them, and then it causes safety concerns and all that jazz. Yeah, I think it's the big thing is I think have like you said earlier, having a conversation with the patient, being open, and not coming after them, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, trying to be Mr. Policeman versus yeah. watching for their safety. Right. Because they're probably going to respond to you better that way. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. But, um, yeah, so um, benzodiazepine, do you want to go through any of the treatment for that? Because most of the, that's dealing with the withdrawal itself. Do you want to touch on some of that or Just, do you I'll, have anything? I'll mention some, so, like, signs and symptoms um, are for uh, patients who might take it in larger amounts than they're supposed to or – over a longer period are kind of the things that you would imagine with um, uh, if it was a lot that they took with sedation, if it's some withdrawal type symptoms, the symptoms of anxiety and sweating and increased heart rate and those sorts of things that you might see. Um, and um, a sign of an overdose might be nystagmus, stupor, respiratory depression, coma, if it's severe, um, and yeah, since we'll, we'll talk about withdrawal later on, which is most of the treatment is related to withdrawal. They do at least say that um, treatment uh, usually just consists of trying to safely taper them off. If you long, can, long-term taper. Long-term taper, if you can convince them to do it. Um, and preventing return to use once the medications are fully discontinued. It can, this can be done outpatient or inpatient and generally suggest using a long-acting benzo rather than a short-acting one uh, in, during a medically supervised taper mm-hmm. yeah. and they say up to 10 weeks to taper so it's a pretty long time yeah a, a pretty decent decent length of time yeah all right what else we got opioids i finished up touching on opioid refresher yeah let's see so with opioid um use disorder we're, we're very familiar with buprenorphine um and that's per- pretty much the the go-to for a lot of patients now um you also see patients that are on methadone as well and um naltrexone um, can be a third option uh the methadone is a little bit more complicated because they have to you know go to the actual clinic especially when they're first starting they have to go every single day to the methadone clinic and get dosed uh, and then as they kind of work their way through the the process and the program uh, they can start to get some doses that they can take home, but it's a very gradual process. And if they have any sort of a relapse or anything, then they get pushed back to the very beginning. Um, But there's a lot of time and, you know, money and effort is involved with, you know, being a member of the methadone clinic for treatment. It can be an effective option for sure, but um, it's, it's a good once a day option, but definitely uh, can be cost prohibitive. And it's a long-term solution with the eventual idea of them tapering off of that. And discontinuing opioids, of course. Yeah, well, and, and I will say to that, just just to throw this out there, because I, I do feel like there's there's always the the patients that are at the pharmacy who have been on buprenorphine for years. Um, and I was talking to an addiction specialist one time who is he's, he's a physician that just basically is only dealing with that kind of thing now. And um, he was saying basically, because I asked him about that, well, why are, if you're going to have them on buprenorphine for the rest of their lives? And he said, ideally, of course, we want to be able to use that as a taper and get them off it. He said, but you will run into patients who they literally, I mean, they are an addict through and through like their, their father and mother, an addict, their brother's an addict. And this, he was telling me this case where they had had someone on buprenorphine for like five years straight. And finally the, the, this wasn't on his patients, but the physician had kind of said, okay, we got to taper off. And the person like the next day relapsed and overdosed and passed away. 
And so from a public health standpoint, from all that, you know, there are patients who, like we said earlier, there is a genetic component and all that. There are patients who may end up, unfortunately, having to be on it long term. And at that point, it's like, okay, where it's a controlled environment versus them getting whatever they can, you know, on their own. Yeah, I mean, we all know what an issue the um, epidemic of overdoses are. And so, yeah, if you know they're getting something safely versus something they think they're taking and then they... It's laced with fentanyl or it's more than they thought. and Yeah. Yeah. They can carry on their completely normal lives if they stick with the program. Yep. Yep. But, yeah, so buprenorphine is, is oftentimes the, the, the go-to option because it doesn't have to be administered in a clinic. It's it's still usually given in small quantities at first, and um, they've made it a lot easier now uh, by doing away with some of the, the, like the X waiver and stuff and some of the restrictions to, to prescribing buprenorphine. So a lot more um, – you know, PAs, nurse practitioners are getting involved with um, prescribing it now. So it's, 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 it's something that a lot more people have access to. Yep. And, and it's one of those that's a, it has both agonist and antagonist activity at different, at different opioid receptors. And so if, it, if it's, if the dose continues to escalate, then it kind of shifts over to being more of an antagonism um, activity. And then, and you don't get the same euphoric effects that you would with a standard opioid. And there is an injectable buprenorphine, mm-hmm. right? There's a long-acting injectable buprenorphine that might be another option in this mix of, you know, considering methadone after the daily buprenorphine as well. Um, and this is, um, uh, especially in moder- more moderate to severe cases, this is where you'd want to start. Um, some would recommend in more of a mild case, you could consider naltrexone first. Um, it probably just depends on... Where yeah. you're at is what they recommend. But. Yeah, I think I think maybe naltrexone if it's a mild case of opioid, but also if they have some kind of an alcohol dependence too, then maybe yeah. that would make sense. But I feel like if it's true moderate or severe opioid, then buprenorphine is right really going to be necessary to cut down those withdrawal symptoms and stuff. There is a long-acting injectable naltrexone yeah. as well as an option too. Yep. And then psychosocial intervention is going to go along with um, – yeah. Any of those. Yeah, all, all of these should should involve some form of cognitive behavioral therapy if possible. Yes. The the issue with the opioid use disorder treatment and management is, you know, that you can't get away from the opioid-induced constipation. That's the, the downfall of using things like buprenorphine or methadone for managing opioid use disorder is, is that opioid-induced constipation is still right there with you. It's going to follow you. And so that oftentimes becomes something that we have to kind of manage right along with, you know, their their symptoms of the, the substance abuse. And so, you know, thinking along the lines of, you know, over-the-counter stool softeners and stimulant laxative like bisic oil, um, those are fine to start off with. And, and some patients will be enough to, especially if they're not on a very high dose of the methadone or buprenorphine, that may be enough to, to keep their, you know, GI flow regular. So, um yeah, that's not always the case, though. And, it, and I've definitely um, worked with some patients, actually, who who are off opioids and, and you know, being controlled with something like, bu- or they're off the opioid they were abusing, but they're on buprenorphine and, and doing really well on it. But the constipation is, like, getting to the point where it's, like, affecting work and, you know, and was becoming very problematic. And so we ended up having to pull out some of the bigger guns. Um, there's a few different options available. Um, so we have methyl naltrexone, um, Relstar is is one option that's that's available after the patient's already trialed the OTC options. Um, this is a sub-Q injection or there's an oral tablet formulation as well. 
Um, it's very rare occurrences of, of GI perforation, and so you do want to watch for a, you know any kind of like severe abdominal symptoms, pain, distension, um, and then if the patient does have any sort of like obstruction, obviously we're not going to use something like this. Um, adverse effects with anything that's going to be effective for constipation is going to be diarrhea. Obviously, you can move things too far the other way. And then um, watching the, the patient's renal function because there's going to be some renal dose adjustments that are necessary if the creatinine clearance falls below 30. Um, and then we also have Movantic as an oral option as mm-hmm. well. Um, it's another... Uh, um, Naloxagol is the generic name for it. And so it's another um, based, uh, another med based on the opioid receptors. And same kind of thing with rare instances of GI perforation to watch for the abdominal symptoms, um, but uh, contraindicated if there's obstruction or anything like that. Um, but it is typically we can um, use either alone, but oftentimes the OTC laxatives are also added as an augmentation option to it. Um, it does have uh, some 3A4 um, interaction, so watching for um, – you can't use it with strong CYP3A4 inhibitors, and if you're using a moderate 3A4 inhibitor, then you want to decrease the dose um, down to the 12.5 milligrams instead of 25. And it does have renal dose adjustments as well and some um, administrative uh, discrepancies where you have to take it on an empty stomach if possible so that you can absorb all the way. Right. Now, my go-to, those are all the ones that are FDA-approved and all that good stuff for opioid-induced um, constipation. Um, I am a big fan of Linzess in this case. There's definitely uh, several studies that show it's, it's efficacious in this regard. I don't know if they're going to, like, go after an uh, FDA indication for opioid-induced constipation for that one. Um, maybe. But uh, there is good data, and I've, I've actually had personal experience with using that in some of the patient's for this specific reason, and it's worked really well. And then Amatiza. You just have personal experience using it yourself when you're constipated. You just take someone's ass. Just take someone's lens ass. I go, hey, do you got any spare lens ass? <laughs> I just call my patients up. Yeah. <laughs> do you imagine how they would be like, excuse me? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I'm all cleared out. Here you go. Yeah, okay. I got a couple of them that would be like, got of like course, man, come extra, on over. 20 extra caps. I definitely have a few of them that I, they would be like, yeah, man, no problem. <laughs> Let's have a lens ass party. That was a test. You're not supposed <laughs> to give your medicine to me. <laughs> Um, but uh, the other option too, uh, Amatiza. So I would say um, I would save that for the patients who, if Linzess is not effective, um, Amatiza and would be you know one that or no, I shouldn't say not effective. If it's too 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 effective, like the side effects, the <laughs> diarrhea. That's that's, that's all I'm, strongly to you about Linzess. It's well, not going to be not effective. It can only be too effective. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, <laughs> this is just based on how you know efficacious both of them are. Amatiza is kind of a wimpier drug. So if somebody is really sensitive to the side effects of Linzess, then maybe Amatiza be a better option for them does it have special dosing too like with food or something like that i thought it had something uh, maybe not i'm ignoring um, t- it's twice a day i just know that I, okay. but i don't i hardly ever use emetiza yeah but uh yeah so that's management of the opioid induced constipation an important thing to consider it is so what do we miss anything like well probably so much stuff but well yeah that we're was, out of time almost uh, anything else we need to cover in you the, know how we had that high level argument that argument about high level as to whether it uh-huh. meant something was yeah, like yeah. very smart or whether it was an overview mm-hmm. i heard somebody use it today in a good way in the context of an overview just so you know oh yeah i mean i, I believed it the person was very clear about their intentions on reddit <laughs> <laughs> they, was make, they was making fun of us <laughs> but uh yeah, when I first because when I first read, it, I was like, "Oh, they give great overview, or they give um, 
large overviews or something like that. I forget how it was high level, did high, le- high, high level high overviews. Level. That's what it was. And I was like, hell, that's cool. And then the more I read, I was like, oh, this person hates us. <laughs> they're, they're meaning that as a diss. <laughs> uh, that's okay. I'm going to still take it as a compliment and feel good about myself. So... Um, that being said, thank you guys so much for listening and not writing mean stuff about us on Reddit. <laughs> and uh, we appreciate it as always. And, and make sure you check out freece.com if you haven't already. We greatly appreciate them for continuing to work with us. And um, they've been a great partner to have so far. And um, we're, we're approaching 50 episodes with them that are wow. accredited. So that's pretty cool. But uh, if you want more lecture style, um, you know, traditional, you know, information uh, lectures that uh, you'd have in a classroom setting, check out patreon.com slash core consult rx. Um, I do a lot of the uh, lectures that I have for my PA students, the pharmacotherapy lectures, um, along with the slides and all that available on Patreon and um, pharmacotherapy questions, all kinds of stuff like that. So check that out. If you have questions for Cole or myself, reach out to us on any of the social media platforms, emails in the show notes, um, cell phone number in the show show notes as well. You can text us on that. And if we don't hear from you, we'll see you in the next episode. Have a good night.